Hi there, it's Tracy, and I have a special bonus episode for you today. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that season five of the show will be launching soon in the new year. Season five will be Lost and Found, stories about the people and things we've lost and the journey to reclaim and rebuild the broken pieces. If you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org. Also, we just launched a new initiative called VBP Journeys. It's a digital space where you can share photos and memories of your family's diaspora story. This project is still in the prototype stage, so be sure to check it out and give us feedback. Go to www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash journeys. Last month, I was invited by the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia, to a virtual conversation with artist and filmmaker Dong Andrew Nguyen and museum curator Kimberly Grant. Dong was born in 1976 in Saigon, Vietnam. In 1979, he and his family immigrated as refugees to the United States. From there, he grew up in California most of his life, until his artistry took him back to Vietnam as a young adult, and he's been living there since. His art and films have been featured in museums and collections globally, and in this conversation, we explore his latest film, The Boat People. In this bonus episode, Thung, Kimberly, and I discuss our histories, war, and the causes of migration. Take a listen. So, Tuan Tracy, we're going to begin um, with some background about you guys and your practice. So let me share the screen. So I'm going to hand it over to Tuan and just let me know as you want me to move forward. All right, cool. Thank you, Kimberly. Um, first of all, thank you for putting this together and, and for connecting me with um, Tracy. I am completely honored um, and I, I think and I'm hoping that uh, I get to work with Tracy um, as we move forward in the future. Um, so the film that is being exhibited at the Chrysler Museum is a film called The Boat People. It is shot entirely in Bataan uh, in the Philippines. And Bataan was a, um, a really important landing site for Vietnamese refugees after the end of the American war in Vietnam that ended in April 30th, 1975. Uh, the numbers are quite not very concrete, but the estimation is that 2 million people migrated from um, Southeast Asia in what, what the French called Indochina, which is um, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos by, by sea uh, after the end of the war. And um, I, I think the, the rough numbers are about half of those people did not make it. And, and Tracy, you can correct me later if, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, but you know, the numbers aren't, aren't right and they're not, they're not accurate at all, but these are the, the rough estimations that I've uh, come across in my years of kind of reading uh, about, about this time in history. But the film is, although the film is very much about history uh, and the history of the people that have landed in Bataan, it's also very much based in the future. Um, we follow a group of children who have traveled by boat around the world 
um, and they're trying to piece together some sort of understanding of, of world history as the world is on the edge of human extinction. Um, and I, I became really interested in Bataan um, primarily because of the, uh, the uh, PRPC, which is the Filipino Refugee Processing, processing Camp there. Um, I have to maybe step back a little bit and say that this film is, is kind of like the second in a series of films. The first film is called The Island, which I completed in 2017. And that film was entirely shot on this island called Pulau Bidong. Um, and Pulau Bidong is situated on the northeastern coast of Malaysia. And Pulau Bidong was one of the largest and longest running refugee camps after the end of the Vietnam War. And that film is also set in a kind of dystopic future as well. Um, so I, I, I was invited to Bataan through um, a residency program, an amazing residency program called Dallas Artist Projects uh, by some really amazing people, um, namely Diana Campbell, who was um, a curator there at that time, and J.M. Akusar, who founded the, uh, the residency. And I think they, you know, they had known that I was really quite interested in, in researching these, these landing sites uh, post-Vietnam War. And they had seen my film, The Island. Um, so they invited me to come to Bataan and kind of do some research. Uh, and the first, one of the first locations I, I got to visit when, when I was in Bataan was the PRPC, the refugee camp which now is mostly open land. Most of the structures are gone, but there is a really interesting museum there, um, kind of maintained. I'm not sure if it's maintained by the local government or uh, just by people who had, who had worked there before, um, but it's a small museum, but they have some really interesting artifacts left over from the, the refugee camp. One of the objects that I, became most kind of obsessed with was a boat. Uh, was a boat that was used to cross from Vietnam and, and landed in the Philippines. Uh, they had kept several boats, but I think one boat ended up in San Jose at a museum in San Jose, and the other boats were just after years of, um, you know, being left outside just kind of fell apart. Um, so I, I was thinking about how to kind of engage Bataan. Um, and the more time I spent there researching, I, I kind of started to be really interested in um, the other histories of Bataan, the other kind of landings, uh, because Bataan is, an, is on an island, you know, the Philippine archipelago is, um, was a landing site for a lot of different kind of moments in history. Uh, one of which was the invasion of the Japanese during World War II, um, you know, the refugees landing in the Philippines after the Vietnam War. The Philippines in that kind of area that I was um, working in was also the landing site of uh, a group of people um, called the Aita, uh, which I think anthropologists call the Negritos. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really kind of interesting history there. So I wanted to kind of expand the film to kind of explore Bataan's 
history and, and its collection of relics. There's a lot of museums there and a lot of the objects left over from, from uh, all these historical events. Um, the film is accompanied by a lot of objects that, um, that were used in the film. You know, Bellas Artes is, is situated in, on a, um, in a project uh, called Las Casas. And, you know, Jam, Jam Akuzar's father is also a collector in his own right. He collects historic buildings. Um, so, for instance, like National Heroes, their houses, you know, built, you know, 100 years uh, ago, he would purchase those houses and migrate those houses onto this piece of land by the beach that he has as a way to kind of, you know, protect the houses as national treasures. Um, Jam's father was an architect and now he, he's, he's been doing this. So on the residency, there's a lot of artisans because the, the maintenance uh, and, you know, when you move a house brick by brick, piece of wood by piece of wood, you need uh, specialists to kind of remake things as, as things are destroyed over time. So we had access to, to these artisans who are amazing. Um, so being inspired by the objects that they were making and being inspired by the, um, the history of Bataan and the different art objects that I found in the different museums, we kind of you know, culminated and, and, and kind of put everything together uh, into this, um, this project called The Bow People. And one of the objects, as Kimberly mentioned, is in the uh, in the show with the Chrysler. And um, now we will give it over to Tracy to introduce uh, the Vietnamese Boat People podcast. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kimberly. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so Vietnamese Boat People, we are a nonprofit. Actually, um, we primarily operate with the podcast, but we do have other things um, under our programs that we do. Um, really what we're all about is documenting what we call the stories of hope, survival, and resilience of the Vietnamese diaspora. And the uh, point of which the diaspora takes is mostly around the following the Vietnam War. So how families and individuals migrated from the country to different parts of the world um, following the end of the war. And um, we do this through the form of storytelling. So just a little bit about me before we kind of move into the slides. Um, similar to Tuan, I came here as a boat person with my family, um, large family. We were separated into three groups. I'm the youngest of seven. And so, you know, it was really risky and expensive to all flee the country at one time. So we had to take three separate journeys, three years apart and miraculously reunited in the United States. Um, but I was three, so I don't obviously remember any of this. Um, and for me growing up, it was all about assimilation. So I didn't really inquire about our history. Um, I wasn't, I also wasn't really taught about our history in American education, right? So like, if you think about, and I went to public school, if you think about the public school education, even still to this day, when we talk about the Vietnamese community, we talk about in the context of the war, but nothing after that and nothing about the community or, you know, the, their diaspora stories. 
So this project was very personal for me because I became an adult. I became a mom of two. And I started to want to inquire about all this history because I wanted to be able to preserve it and have a legacy of what my parents had to endure and what our, our family and relatives had to endure to be able to pass it on to my children who are American born and raised. That really is what started the podcast and the nonprofit. Um, so our mission is to preserve these stories as part of world history. Um, we felt like in order for us to tell the narratives of our community, we had to take upon ourselves to bring that forward in an accessible way. So we're certainly not the first oral history project around this subject, but what is very important to us is to create it in a way that is relatable and that is digestible um, so that the everyday individual could really um, understand it without having to feel like they have to go into in-depth history or research to be able to really grasp what the Vietnamese diaspora was all about. Um, our podcast is all in first person. We wanted our community to tell our stories. That was very important to us. Um, and we also wanted to just elevate the overall Asian American narrative. Um, I say Asian American, it's a very big umbrella. <laughs> and sometimes I hate that it's a big umbrella because when you peel the, the layers and um, the onion underneath, it's that every Asian group, we, we all come from one continent, but our countries are vastly different, right? And so um, I thought it was important to kind of be able to showcase the Vietnamese narrative in this context um, so that we don't get lost in the bigger umbrella. Um, and also, I won't go into politics, but roughly around 2018 or 2016, when this idea was brewing, there was just a lot of um, controversial um, discussions among um, immigration, refugees, America closing borders. And um, I think people were starting to form assumptions and stereotypes of why someone chooses to flee their country. And so by starting the podcast in this organization, what our um, team hopes to do is evoke more empathy by listening to these first person stories and experiences through everyday people who really had to endure a lot, right? And this is not an easy decision that refugees or immigrants make to leave their homeland and their families behind. So, you know, our stories are meant to really connect emotionally so that people have better understanding on a migrant experience. And we interview just what I call ordinary people with extraordinary journeys and lived experience. I mean, these are people that you may see in your neighborhood, in the supermarket, you know, Vietnamese individuals that are oftentimes, um, like my parents' generation, very quiet and reserved, but they actually have gone through amazing things within their lives. And so we wanna bring that forward. Um, you don't have to be Vietnamese to relate to these stories because at the end of the day, these stories are what we call just stories about the human spirit. We do speak with, uh, you know, first generation. So the, um, the individuals that have lived through the war experience. And then we also interview people like Tuan and myself who were born after the war, but we lived through the post-war conditions, even if we were children. And then we grew up with what it was like to assimilate back then in the 80s, 
where there weren't a lot of Vietnamese Americans as maybe there are today. So um, we were a pretty new ethnic group at the time. So survival and assimilation was very um, essential for you know, our families. And then generations uh, two, three and beyond, it's the younger generations is really why our organization is doing this, right? Because we feel that um, if you look at that first generation and the decades that they were born in, the window of opportunity to capture their stories is closing. So for us, it's very important to capture them, but incorporate um, within the experience all the younger generations so that they can be involved in the dialogue as well. I like to use the term coming of age because I felt like that's what I went through when I created the podcast and the nonprofit. And what I mean by that is a lot of us go through this um, circular journey when we are refugees and immigrants where we don't really want to attach ourselves to the past or be, um, you know, carry the weight of what our parents had to endure. So oftentimes we try to forget that we try to assimilate. A lot of us go through what we call, you know, Americanizing ourselves. And then what happens is that you grow older, you appreciate things more, you see, you know, what your parents had endured, you become parents yourself. So all of that changes your perspective. And so I call it the coming of age and wanting to reconnect. And so a lot of our listeners are going through similar experiences. And in addition to sharing the stories, um, for example, the uh, storytelling workshops and the conversation kits that you mentioned earlier, Kimberly, our organization has developed that because we want to help younger generations um, ask these questions. Sit their parents down, you know, don't be intimidated by it and you have to start somewhere. Um, but, you know, we're trying to encourage them to participate. Um, so thank you guys both uh, for, I mean, just from both your stories and in your practices, I'm just learning so much. And it was funny because I, I had a question that kind of Tracy somewhat answered, so I may come back to it. Um, but I think I actually want to start by asking you both the question. Um, and that is really about the phrase, the boat people, because in kind of doing my research when I was you know, talking to Tuan and, and kind of just doing, um, just kind of learning a bit about, you know, that moment in time and, and, and everything. The term, I, I had a very visceral reaction to it initially, even though like the film is just so amazing and the podcast is so amazing. But so I'm wondering if a little bit, both of you can kind of talk about why you titled it there. And as well as I know that the, again, the term has some different connotations. So I'd love for you guys to both just kind of um, just begin there. So maybe we'll go with, we'll go with Tuan first. How about just so that way he can unmute. <laughs> I was I was just gonna invite Tracy to answer first, but um, <clears throat> yeah, the term boat people is is a controversial term for sure. Um, even within the Vietnamese community, the Vietnamese American community, or the diasporic Vietnamese community, I would say um, there's a lot of disagreement about the term. Um, definitely, when it was brought about in the media in, in the early 80s, it was, it was kind of used as a derogatory term, I believe. Um, that's my take on it. Um, but for me, you know, we, we grew up hearing this term so much. And um, even the Vietnamese community who, who migrated by sea 
has in, adapted this term in, in, into Vietnamese, um, primarily as it's translated as Tuy Nhan, which essentially means boat person um, or, or, a, or a person who has traveled by boat. Um, for me, it was important to kind of take the term and kind of flip it on its head a little bit through this project. So through all the media that was happening in the 80s um, and all the kind of jargon and the vocabulary that was kind of revolving around this mass exodus out of Southeast Asia, words like a flooding of people or the boat people, um, it was kind of, I think, meant to create a kind of fear and an anxiety, a kind of xenophobia uh, within, you know, American society, which we've seen historically, you know, uh, many, many times. For me, it was important to take the term and kind of flip it a little bit. So in, in the boat people, the film that, that I made, the, the boat people are actually humanity's last salvation. They are humanity and they will through, through the power of this one little girl will will save humanity or not and it's and it's her choice entirely um so for me i was really trying to play with the term the boat people and kind of you know uh bring in kind of um uh destabilizing of the term in into the project thank you tracy i had some uh, very similar thoughts so I'll start off with the, the non-interesting, simple one. I was going through tons of names for, the, my, for my podcast and trying to play with terms, trying to be cute and curt. And my husband, who is a very straightforward guy, um, he said, just call it Vietnamese boat people. Everybody will get what you're talking about. And I was like, what? And he was like, it's just simple. Just, you know, people are familiar with that term. And I did not hesitate to call it that, actually, because in my experience growing up, my family, while it was very traumatic and sad, um, it, the means in which we fled the country, my mom had always shared the story with kind of an underlining pride in terms of like, can you believe we, we survived that? Can you believe that, you know, um, our people had the strength to endure that and that, you know, they were willing to risk everything, their own lives to be able to search for freedom. So I think that type of um, connection to it was always in the back of my mind. And it wasn't until I started the podcast where, like Tuan had described, I did start to see how the media was portraying the term. And there were definitely... Um, areas where, you know, boat people were portrayed as this sort of like pathetic group of people that needed rescuing, that needed Western countries to take them in. Do you know what I mean? And, and so there is that perception. And then, you know, some of the, the photography um, from back in the 70s and 80s did show those types of conditions. And so some people don't want to be associated with that term. But um, I think that the one thing that we try to do in our podcast is very similar to what Tuan said. Um, if you listen to our podcast, what you will find is that these are not sad and pathetic stories. These are stories of people just overcoming a lot of hardship and they had just had been able to find the strength 
within themselves, but also um, found humanity and support and kindness from people that they were surrounded by to help them um, overcome this. And so we, we think it's very uplifting. And I do hope that by listening to these lived experiences that people can walk away with a different perception of what boat people really is. Yeah, you know, it's it, the, I think both of your projects are uplifting in many ways. I know, Tuan, you say that the film has this kind of future diastopic kind of bent to it, but I also think that the, just the children themselves, these, these, well, I mean, you know, the innocent, the very vulnerable individuals are surviving on their own, that they're, they're, they're moving, they're chaining across the world, they're representing them as humanity. And so I think that this, you know, both of your, of your projects as well have this, um, there's a strength in everyone, you know, there's a strength in the stories that you're both telling. And so I really love that about, you know, individually, but together, it's, it's just a very, I think, powerful thing. Yeah, I think Tracy mentioned two really important key words here. Um, re resilience is one. Um, I think, you know, the, the term boat people, when it was introduced via the media in the early 80s, there were two kind of angles to it. One was that these people are, are victims. They were victimized um, and powerless. Uh, and the other slant was that these, these people are like aliens. They're, they're coming to invade our nation, which is still, which is still the kind of talk right now, the, the, yeah. you know, right? Um, so this idea of resilience and empowering is, is, is important. Um, and I think it's really beautiful what the Vietnamese Boat People podcast is doing um, in kind of thinking about storytelling as, as a way to kind of enter um, this idea of empathy, um, because I think empathy is, is really important. Um, and, it, and for me, empathy is, is, is kind of like the first step in, in reaching a, a solidarity between people. And I think solidarity, especially during these times, is, is really important. I think that, I mean, especially I think right now, I mean, so my, my, my next question, I think, and I'd love, and, and then I want to have us just have a dialogue. So Tuan, Trace, if you guys have questions for each other, let's, let's do this. But the other question I kind of have for you is, you know, both of the projects deal with, you know, um, this idea of kind of immigration, of travel, of, you know, almost a refugee situation. I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, how you think the experience of, um, you know, the, 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 the American War in Vietnam, the Vietnam War. I think that's another kind of interesting question about the terminology about how we use, you know, and how it's taught and the language that's used to the Viet taught. But also I think how does that experience you think could could teach us about what's happening now with the with the Haitian refugees that are, you know, under a bridge in uh, in a border town in Mexico about, you know, um, the the Afghanistan situation. I think there's there's so much happening right now that I think both of your stories, though they're talking about a past moment, are just so relevant. It's, it's, a, it's a happening again and again. So I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that. Well, where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could start with the, the recent events in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm sure everybody, I'm sure you guys followed it, just how much the Vietnamese community came out and said, wow, this is like history repeating itself, right? And so, um, there's, I think there's like, I don't want to categorize, but there's different experiences of refugees. And um, in the case of the 
the Vietnamese refugees, um, there, I think countries like America felt a great deal of responsibility to help mm. take in the refugees at the time. Um, so, you know, before there was boat people, there was organized evacuations right after the war. So, you know, right at the fall of Saigon, there was Operation Babylift, Operation New Life. I mean, these were organized evacuations to get Vietnamese people out of the country that were associated with um, Americans during the war or that worked for the embassy or that had relationships. And so that's exactly what's happening now in Afghanistan. I mean, those organized evacuations are prioritizing those citizens. Um, and so I think there's that sense of responsibility that we may not always see when it comes to other refugee groups across the world. Um, so a lot of politics is underneath that, as we all know. But one of the things that I think that I don't know that we can escape, but I hope that we as you know, humanity learn from is um, how do we get to a place in America to recognize that this is a land of many immigrants. And that's the thing that always itches me all the time is that we have forgotten that. And um, I just think that if we can get to a place where we recognize that, I think things will become different for how we accept refugees and how we respond to relief efforts as everyday citizens. I mean, certainly there's organized agencies and nonprofits out there, but as everyday citizens, I think it's important for us to kind of look at all these historical events and understand what we can do differently as part of this generation. I don't know if I answered your question because that was just a loaded question to me. Yeah, I didn't, and I think there's no there's no right or wrong. I mean, I'm just thinking about there's so many parallels, but obviously mm -hmm. so many differences. And and I just I always find it amazing when I mean when creative people because in, in a way just create such a powerful piece of work that is resonant regardless of the time because you know both the podcast and the film they're both referencing these stories that, like, as you said, the Tracy, that are, it's happening again, history is repeating itself in a different country with a different language in a different, you know, kind of war climate. Um, so Twan, I don't know if you would like to add some, some more thoughts. Yeah, um, well, you know, the, the 20th century is, is known as the century of displacement and migration because of all the various wars that happened you know, there was large migrations from Europe to the U.S. Um, you know, there is just so many countless migrations and millions and millions of people that were displaced. The thing is that we're, we're now in a different century, but the number of people that are being displaced is not getting any less. Um, and, and now we have to add on to that environmental refugees, people who have to move from their, their, their homelands because of env environmental uh, change and environmental catastrophe. So this idea of a refugee or a migrant um, or an asylum seeker is something that we, we, have to, we have to deal with. We have to wrap our minds around and we have to kind of find um, ways to, to care for people. I think what happened in you know, after the Vietnam War, because there was so much anti-war sentiment prior to the end of the Vietnam War, um, 
there is a lot of pressure put onto the government to receive refugees. Um, a lot of refugees were turned back and repatriated, um, but a lot made it to the US and to other, to other countries like Australia, Europe. I mean, you find refugees in places that you wouldn't necessarily think had uh, received refugees, Vietnamese refugees. Um, and so I think, you know, with the situation in Afghanistan, I think what is happening is that a lot of people are trying to apply pressure to the US government to receive Afghan refugees because of the US involvement in Afghanistan for, I don't know, 20 years, right? So I think that's, this is something that we ha have to kind of think about um, and we have to really seriously consider um, because this, this idea of a refugee or a migrant is, is not going to um, go away. It's not going to be something that, you know, we can sweep under the rug. It's, it's gonna get, it's gonna become a bigger and bigger um, situation, a bigger issue. As we as we move further into the future, yeah, I mean, and just even thinking about, you know, I mean, it was the idea of displacement. You also think with the, with the COVID crisis and how so many people, you know, left either voluntarily or kind of felt like they're for, you know, kind of forced to leave. And, and so I think that again, you know, and I and I, that was a term I had not heard of, but I think that that's as I'm thinking about it, as you were saying it, I was like, wow, yes, because you think about, you know, whilst you were saying about, you know, refugees going in different places. Made me think of when you had the, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the famine in Sudan, and so you had, you know, refugees going from there to, you know, Europe as well. So I just think so again that having to leave, whether or not it's by war, whether it's by the environment, whether it's by, you know, um, uh, issues of, you know, disease, it's it's just it's getting worse, which is scary. Right. I mean, you know. The, the, the war in Vietnam was a continuation of a kind of colonial presence, right? Yeah. The French were in Vietnam for a hundred years, colonized the country. Um, so, so this idea of, you know, the colonial history also has a, a, a big, is a big factor in, in all the migrations that are happening out yeah. of Africa, out of Southeast Asia, out of um, South Asia, out of uh, the Middle East. Um, you know, economic factors is, is, is another thing. I mean, I was uh, in, in Senegal a few years ago doing, doing a film about a migration of Vietnamese women and children from, from Vietnam to West Africa. But, but during my time there, I mean, there was a lot of stories about young men migrating from Senegal by boat to try to get to Italy because they couldn't survive um, due to the economic hardships that they were suffering. In, 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 in Senegal, in West Africa. And, you know, a lot of the money is going to France. So it's like, yeah. you know, the, 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 the relics and the residue of colonialism is still there and it's, and it's real and it's still affecting people and it's still affecting migration yeah. that are happening. Yeah, I think that's the one thing about the Vietnam War that um, I think a lot of people don't know is that Vietnam was at war for centuries. I mean, it really wasn't an independent country until after the war, right? And that's what it, I mean, in Vietnam, they call it the American War. I don't know if other people know that, like Tuan Pai knows that there's a museum where, you know, it's called the American War. And really it was a civil war 
in Vietnam between North and South that the Americans got involved in. Um, but after the war, because of all those decades of not really um, governing the country um, independently, they were left in a position where they didn't actually have the right leadership. Um, it was a war-torn country where infrastructure was destroyed, um, where you still had people that were not in favor of, at the time, the communist regime. So there was just all this conflict that I think led to so many um, just disparities in the fall of the country itself. And that in itself made it really hard to survive for everyday citizens. I mean, not only did like the economy, I mean, other countries were closing doors and not trading with Vietnam, so they couldn't grow. They didn't have the means to rebuild their country. So they had citizens become laborers to rebuild the country. If um, you listen to the podcast, the government reissued the currency and it's because they wanted everybody on a social even um, platform so that there wasn't any like disparity in wealth unless you know you were part of the, the government. So all of those things that were happening to the citizens, I mean, a lot of them did think they were victims of it, right? Because they had no control. And it's one of the things that I asked my dad was, you know, dad, everybody was fleeing Vietnam after the fall. Why did we not? Like my dad had told me we didn't even attempt to flee. Um, we migrated south, but we thought, no, this is our country and we're going to stay. And he told me it's because nobody had any idea what was really going to happen. And my dad said, you know, you, your mom and I, we weren't fighting in the war. We had no real political ties. He was like, I was a teacher. And so for him, he didn't feel at risk and they chose to stay. And it wasn't until afterwards that they realized how difficult it was for them to actually rebuild. And I use Vietnam as an example because I think these, these same situations are happening in these countries when you talk about post-war conditions. Um, and you know, it's almost inevitable because when a country's at war for that long, there are just gonna be things that um, are destroyed both within human nature and within the environment itself and the infrastructure of the country. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense because how how does one, if you don't know what your environment's going to be and you try and, and stay, but then you realize I can't actually survive here. I mean, I think about, you know, after the fall of the, um, you know, World War II and the incredible inflation that happened in Germany and throughout Europe and just trying to kind of, you know, build there. But again, and then again, Twan, your point about, you know, economic issues, like if you can't, if you can't make a living, if you can't feed your family, you're going to go elsewhere um, to, you know, to find opportunities to do that. So um, we're getting close to, to Q&A time. So I want to see if Tracy or Twan, do you have any questions for each other that you'd like to, like to kind of ask before I turn it over to some Q&A questions? I mean, I do. I, so I got to watch The Island, which is the prequel to The, the Boat People. And I was just curious, Twan, you touched on this a little bit, but what made you want to like just oppose the past to the far future in the film the boat people or even the island but i don't know if others on this call have seen the island yeah thank you that's a that's a, that's a great question you know i think <clears throat> when people leave a place 
and they leave a, a context in a situation. Um, they do it very saturated in this idea of a future. So, so I'm taking this idea of a future and, and kind of applying it um, into the narrative that I'm building around these, these places. I'm also thinking that when things are kind of destroyed at the extent in which they are after war or in situations where migrations are forced, um, people often go deep into their imaginations to find hope um, and, and to kind of give themselves a, a kind of, uh, and, and I don't know if that's the right word. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it there. But I was also thinking that it would be quite interesting to think about the end of the world and turning this, this, this once large refugee camp into a refuge for humanity to kind of, kind of look at scale um, and, and human time and, and think about how, how much, what, kind, what kinds of empathies that can we draw if we kind of flip the story a little bit um, and, and make Pulau Bidom like the refuge for humanity. Uh, so, so those were just some kind of things that I was thinking about. You know, I got really, I got really interested in, in the things that people were making um, on, on Pulau Bidong, some amazing, amazing monuments, amazing relics that are still left there. And so that, that is something that, you know, was fascinating to me. Um, when people are in the state of liminality, when, when their lives are in limbo and they're still, and they still have a need to make and to create and to think uh, in this kind of imaginative space. Um, and I think, you know, that, that has to do with, the, it affects our resiliency, right? This is how we, 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 we maintain some sort of re resiliency is how we can imagine um, and how we can hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know in the stories that we've come across in our podcast, I mean, on these refugee camps, like people rebuilt their lives. Like some of them were there temporarily and some of them were there for like years, you know, one, two, three years. And I always found it so fascinating when people share stories about how like there were just small economies that were built on these camps. People started businesses, they were bartering stuff. They, um, it just kind of developed in its own community and to find those relics, I think is really interesting. Um, but also the, in the film, you had these like um, relics that I think if you, maybe this is what you were saying is that when you remove the time factor, they're kind of timeless itself, the messages of hope and just life itself that comes across. I don't know if that's what you were trying to get at, but. Totally, totally. You know, there, there's a monument on uh, Pulau Bidong. It's a really kind of, it looks, if you look at it now, it looks kind of sci-fi. Um, but what the refugees on the island managed to do is they managed to convince the Malaysian task force to allow them to build this, this monument. Um, it's called the Five Sails Monument. Uh, but what it really was, was 
a, a beacon for other boats at night because they would light a fire inside this monument at night. Um, and as, as, a, as a beacon for other boats that were lost at sea to find the island. So there are some kind of um, really beautiful kind of subversive acts of, of, of compassion and empathy, you know, that were going on in this kind of space too, so. Um, oh, sorry, did, did you guys have any other questions? I, was I do, but I go know. For, no, go for it. Yeah, yeah, go for know, it. But, but Tracy, you and I will be having many more conversations. <laughs> I so. know. I feel like I found a new best friend. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. I'm just curious to also, like, when did you decide to go back to Vietnam and live there and do your, your work there, your craft there? Because, um, I mean, I'm curious what, how that all began. And also, like, how did your just artistry evolve from like coming and growing up predominantly in the U.S., right? Because I assume you were pretty young when you came to the U.S. to now like being an artist in Vietnam and a creator. Like, how has just your mindset and your vision evolved? Yeah, um, I was almost four when when we landed in the U.S. Um, I grew up mainly in the in the Midwest, in Oklahoma and Texas, actually, where there was no Asians. And um, you know, in two thousand in two thousand four, I had the the U.S. was involved in in Iraq and and other kind of political kind of mishaps that I didn't really quite agree with. And I you know, and I had met my grandmother when I was twelve years old. She she managed to get a visa to the U.S. Um, to seek medical attention for my grandfather. And she was only here for a few months, but she's an amazing lady. And I would hear these amazing stories of my grandmother and how she managed to get all of her eight children to leave Vietnam. Um, and she was a writer and a poet and she was, you know, published as her po poetry was published at a really young age. And, and out of our entire extended family, she's kind of like the one that was a big inspiration for me because um, she followed her heart and she, be, you know, she, she uh, followed a path in like a creative endeavor. Um, and I just wanted to spend time with her. And I actually wanted to make a documentary about her. I mean, I, I think that these motivations are very similar to, to your motivations of, you know, archiving and capturing and sharing stories. Um, and so after graduate school, I, I had in mind that, you know, I was not going to be in the U.S. anymore. Um, and that I was going to be in Vietnam. And so I moved in 2004. I've been here almost 20 years. Um, and uh, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, one's perspective of history kind of shifts when you kind of engage in multiple, you know, viewpoints of that history, right? So, so that's helped me a lot. Yeah, and I bet the country's just changed so much in the 20 years that you've been there. I mean. Yeah, tremendously. Every, every month it changes. Well, some things change really fast and some things change really slow. Not fast enough. <laughs> yeah. So we have just a few minutes left, so I'd like to just turn over to a couple of the Q&A questions. So we had one uh, question for you, Tracy, and it is asking about if the podcast also, <clears throat> also captures stories of Vietnamese Canadians or Vietnamese people from other who immigrate to other countries. Um, currently, most of what's on the podcast are Vietnamese Americans, but I would love 
to capture stories of the Vietnamese community in other countries. So if you have one, please contact us at um, share at vietnameseboatpeople.org. Right now, we, all, we do have a blog also that people contribute to, and that blog has stories from all over the world. So we've had contributors from Canada, from Austria, UK, Australia, UK. So, um, I mean, we're absolutely open to it. And the interesting thing is a lot of our listeners come from all over the world. So, um, of course, U.S. is our number one listening countries, but our top five countries are U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and Vietnam. Um, and then we've got like 10 other countries that um, download the podcast. But yeah, I'm very open to it. And I would like to see more Vietnamese um, people in other parts of the world um, share their story on our podcast. Wonderful. So we have a question for both of you. Um, <clears throat> Have, uh, I guess, have either of you ever had discussions with other Asian communities with different experiences, wait, about the different experiences of the Vietnamese, Lao, and Cambodian refugees trying to build a new life among um, Filipinos in the Philippines, um, as opposed to building a life in the United States? So I guess, have, you know, kind of what, if you knew of anyone calling to the Philippines or support the United States, and this person says, as a Filipino-American, I'd never known about these refugees and show about learning about your work. So we've got someone new who's learning about your project. So I don't know if anyone wants to um, talk about that. Um, I personally have not on the podcast. Um, there is a documentarian um, named Nuk Nui. Tuan, I don't know if you know him. He's based in California. Um, we profiled one of his documentaries, but I know um, he's done a series and one of them, gosh, I can't, remember the name of it, but it was about a group of Vietnamese people in the Philippines. Um, and it was actually, I think, centered around being stuck in the Philippines and then just coming to terms and building their life there. Like they were kind of stuck in limbo. Um, but on our podcast, we haven't. And one of the things that I think um, as our podcast is maturing that I'd like to explore. So in addition to Vietnamese outside of America, um, I'd also like to explore other ethnic groups in Vietnam during this time. I mean, there were a lot of um, Chinese that had immigrated to Vietnam, so Chinese uh, Vietnamese families um, living in the country at the time and what their experiences were like because there was this anti-China sentiment um, as well because you know China and Vietnam once upon a time in history were at war. So there's a lot of that um, history in the country as well. Um, but yeah, I would love to kind of explore all the different ethnic groups that were in Vietnam during that time. Yeah, I think, you know, all the, all the facts kind of escaped me now because I haven't revisited the story in a long time, but I think it was Palawan, a refugee camp in the Philippines, where there were generations born inside the refugee camp on, 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 um, in the Philippines. Um, and they couldn't get national nationality in the Philippines, and they wouldn't be and they weren't received by any other country. So they, I think this is the story that you're talking about. And there was a big um, court case trying to help these people get to a national a Philippine national like citizenship, or at all kind of. It was it was big maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I haven't kind of revisited the story, but it was and then really kind of crazy case where you know like yes. there were two generations of, of Vietnamese 
refugees born in the Philippines that weren't allowed to be Filipino citizens and they weren't taken. So it, it, it was a crazy kind of state of limbo for these people. Yes, yes. And I just Googled it. <laughs> oh, wow. It's called Stateless. Um, and it's exactly what you're describing. There was a whole court case. And um, when I was talking to Dick Nguyen about his film that we featured, uh, Bowling Out 52, it's a different one, but he was saying when he was doing Bowling Out 52, which is about some refugees that landed in Bowling Out, Philippines. Um, it's one of our episodes, but he did a documentary. Um, at the time, there was a lot of boat pushback happening. So if people aren't familiar with that, there was just an influx of refugees. And so the neighboring Asian countries started to push them back to international waters, saying that we can't take any more refugees. So a lot of these boats ended up just floating at sea for weeks and months. Um, and Bolinao um, 52 is a documentary about how a boat of 102 people finally landed in Bolinao, Philippines, but in the end, only 52 survived. Um, and so Stateless was his follow-up to that because he happened to be in the Philippines filming that when the court case was going on, um, Tuan. And so it then he piggybacked on it and um, made Stateless uh, as a follow-up to that documentary. But these are very interesting films. Um, I don't know who asked the question, but um, I would encourage them to explore those two as well. And Tracy, if you wouldn't mind maybe typing um, in the chat a couple of the names of the, I mean, we got yeah. Stateless and, and the other one, because I'd love to um, <clears throat> let, our, let our visitor, let our viewers kind of know. Absolutely. So, um, so it's nine o'clock. Um, we've kind of run up, but I'd love if Tracy or Twan, if you have any kind of final words you want to say, I just want to say how wonderful this conversation has been. It's been wonderful working with you, Twan. He and I have, just so everybody knows, he and I have been discussing about making something happen. <laughs> For years, so I was absolutely thrilled um, to be able to bring uh, the Bill People film to the Chrysler, and it's it's a phenomenal work, and it's been wonderful getting to know Tracy and the podcast, which is also a phenomenal project. Yeah, thank you again, Kimberly, uh, for making all of this happen. The film and related artifacts and sculptures are currently exhibiting at the Chrysler Museum until January 2022. Make sure to check it out on location or visit Chrysler.org for details. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at Vietnamese